Ken Walsh was one of the longest-serving White House correspondents ever. Starting in the 1980s, he covered seven different administrations for U.S. News and World Report. Now, when he talks about his career, there's one thing everybody wants to know. Which president was his favorite? There's lots of different ways I answer that question. The most interesting president to cover, Bill Clinton, a fascinating presidency to cover, and Ronald Reagan was the most historically important. But in personal terms, it was really Bush. America today is a proud, free nation, decent and civil, a place we cannot help but love. George H.W. Bush succeeded Ronald Reagan in January 1989. Ken interviewed the new Republican president one week after he moved into the White House. Just me and him and one advisor in the Oval Office. And I said, are you concerned that you're following this president who is so good on television, and frankly, you don't have a reputation of being very good on television. He said, you know, I've been six foot three since I was 18 years old, and people have always thought I was a little guy. And so this is where the humility and even an insecurity came out with him, which made him very real, that he realized he could never be the communicator that Reagan, his predecessor, was. The former vice president wanted to be a low-key chief executive. When his speechwriters handed him drafts full of sweeping language, he'd scribble in the margins. That's not me. The hand remains extended. The sleeves are rolled up. And now we must produce. He always said, you know, I'm not interested in what he called stagecraft. He said it with some disdain. George Bush may have hated stagecraft. But he needed it, badly. The national media called him a wimp, a follower, and chronically indecisive. Ken actually thought that Bush's humility was kind of endearing. But as a White House correspondent, he found the Bush administration deeply annoying to cover. Because there wasn't much to cover. We were going to the briefings, trying to arrange interviews, but it wasn't leading to much. We were running into a lot of brick walls. Were you feeling frustrated? Sure, there was a lot of frustration. They weren't generating stories. And it was shaping up that this might be, frankly, a boring presidency. In his first year in office, Bush got featured on the nightly news just one-third as often as Reagan had been. Ken could feel the White House beat becoming irrelevant, and he was desperate to find some news. So I talked to many, many people, people who my colleagues might not think are worth talking to, just on the idea that maybe I'll pick up a tidbit or something that would lead somewhere else and have a, a good story out of it. One of the people he checked in with was a Republican PR consultant named Sheila Tate. She didn't work in the White House, but she had been Bush's press secretary during the 1988 campaign. She knew the president very well, so it was a good potential source there. And so we decided to go to lunch. I believe we went to the Hay Adams, really a block from the White House, just across the street. After a bit of small talk, Ken got straight to the point. I just said very bluntly, it doesn't seem like a lot of things are going on at the White House these days. Is there any story out there that hasn't come out yet? With that question hanging in the air, Ken's source looked down at her plate. And there was unfinished broccoli that she hadn't touched. And she sort of sat back in her chair. And then she said, have you heard that President Bush banned broccoli on Air Force One? And I said, no, tell me more. 
The story Ken Walsh heard that day would cause pandemonium in Washington, D.C. and all over the country. That national frenzy would change the fate of a vegetable and maybe even alter the course of a presidency. Well, there's a bit of a brouhaha in Washington over the president's eating habits, of all things. He is fed up with broccoli, the stock and the talk. Mom, this is it. The president doesn't like it, and I don't like it, and I don't want to do it either. I think the thing that we learned is you don't mess with broccoli. This is one year, 1990. Bush versus broccoli. I'm the only press secretary in history to be appointed by two presidents, back-to-back, President Reagan and President Bush. Marlon Fitzwater first got to know George H.W. Bush when Bush was vice president. In their years working together, the two men became very close friends. They often bonded over meals. I think it was because he wanted somebody that understood him and that was not going to ask him a lot of questions. Almost everybody else in the world, if they get to go to dinner privately with the president, they want to start asking them questions about their issue. Not me. I wanted to eat my pork and forget it. And so we got along fine. How would you describe President Bush's eating habits? Well, they were strange in a sense that he'd eat almost anything in the world. In 1989, Bush was spotted at a Houston hotel crumbling Butterfinger candy bars into oat bran but he was best known for another snack food indulgence. He somehow fell in during the campaign of eating pork rinds. And virtually everybody who traveled with him thought they were the most ugly, distasteful thing you could possibly eat. And he would snarf those babies up. But there were some foods that Bush couldn't stomach. He did have a habit of pushing the vegetables off to the edge of the plate. He didn't uh, like broccoli. And I don't think he cared too much for cauliflower. And, of course, in the White House, I mean, you have chefs and cooks, and they prepare the best food around. So if you don't like something, chances are it's your own fault. How did Barbara Bush feel about her husband's eating habits? Well, she thought they could be better. Barbara tried to convince her husband to eat a healthier diet, encouragement that he described as vegetable totalitarianism. By the time he was in the White House, she'd pretty much given up that fight. No matter what the First Lady or anyone else said, President Bush was just saying no, to broccoli in particular. He didn't want to eat it in the White House, or in a car, on a train, on a boat, or on Air Force One. The food is prepared and served by Air Force stewards. I think the president must have told one of them that he didn't like broccoli and didn't want him to serve it. This is the original page where I broke the story, Washington Whispers, which is the name of our sort of gossip column in U.S. News at the time. Ken Walsh's scoop in U.S. News and World Report was just a single paragraph. It ran in March of 1990 under the headline, Against the Green. After eight years of swallowing his pride, George Bush is enjoying a taste of victory. The president has banned broccoli on Air Force One. As vice president, Bush often complained that... I suspect that story is 100% accurate. Very few stories are in that category. The facts of the story really were known to a lot of people. And uh, This wasn't like a closely held state secret. No, it wasn't. And nobody was trying to keep it that way. I mean, 
He didn't care, and he probably was surprised that they would have a story out of it. I thought initially it would be a fun story, an unusual thing, and you know, that's sort of the essence of news, something unusual, something new. We were in like a news desert there for a while. It was just something, a legitimate story that nobody else had and nobody else dreamed of. U.S. News and World Report has discovered that the leader of the free world has banished broccoli from Air Force One. When you hear that this is in the press, what's the first thing that you do as the press secretary? I didn't really see a value right off the bat in a sense of trying to initiate coverage or anything like that. But I did believe that if anybody raised the issue or asked about it, that we should just admit it. Yes, he doesn't like broccoli. And I turned to my own experience, of course, and I'm one of the millions and millions of young boys in America who don't like one or another green vegetables and have been chastised for it by their mothers and fathers. And I knew exactly what he felt like. I knew exactly what he was saying. And I said, I'll bet you most people in America do. That was how Marlon Fitzwater saw it in Washington, D.C. 2,800 miles away in Southern California, Lisa Cork had a very different reaction. Here's this fantastic vegetable that's so good for you. You can't ban broccoli. In March 1990, Lisa was 24 years old. She worked in marketing for Apio Produce Sales in Guadalupe, California. We would sell on a daily basis over 70 different fruits and vegetables. Cauliflower, spinach, celery, red leaf, green leaf, romaine, green onions, kale. And we were probably one of the top three broccoli growers in the United States. Broccoli has been around for thousands of years, but it wasn't until the early 1920s that it became a commercial product in the United States. It didn't take long for the green stock to get a bad reputation. In 1928, the New Yorker published a cartoon showing a mother and daughter at the dinner table. The mom says, it's broccoli, dear. The child responds, I say it's spinach, and I say the hell with it. Lisa heard those kinds of complaints, and a whole lot more. Mushy, gray, and if it's overcooked, it can have a pretty distinctive odor. Those were the common, you know, dislikes. That gray, mushy, boiled mess is likely what George Bush got fed in New England as a kid in the 1930s. But five decades later, the much maligned vegetable was having a renaissance. Just wait till you taste my broccoli. Whether I mix it with exotic straw mushrooms and bamboo shoots in my latest farm-fresh mixture, or I... From 1980 to 1988, the average American doubled their broccoli consumption. Some people loaded up their plates for the health benefits. But that wasn't the only reason. The giant's rich, delicious cheese sauce has three kinds of cheese, so his good broccoli tastes more delicious, his cauliflower more flavorful. Even without the orange goo, plenty of Americans loved how broccoli tasted. Because by 1990, cooking techniques had come a very long way. Broccoli, when, you know, freshly prepared and not overcooked, it's beautiful. I guarantee you've never had anything like it. It tastes fresh and just picked delicious. For Lisa, there was no better time in history to be trumpeting broccoli's virtues. And then, on Monday morning, March 19th, 1990, she walked into her office and got hit with a full-on vegetable crisis. 
The guys start rolling in and they're getting the sense of this story from the East Coast buyers who'd been, you know, three hours ahead of us going, hey, did you hear the news? The industry was buzzing. One of the sales guys would take a call going, gosh, yeah, no, I hadn't heard about the broccoli. And then two desks down, oh my God, somebody just talked about the broccoli story. He hates it. He has always hated it. Now with a snap of his fingers, broccoli can be banned from the presidential table. You're in the broccoli business. Does that seem like really bad news for you? Well, it wasn't great news, you know, because you think about the potential influence, right? And so it felt like news that couldn't go unchallenged. By this point, the story was everywhere. And Lisa and her coworkers were watching the clock, waiting for someone to defend Broccoli's honor. You know, somebody should do something. And we had kind of like two to three hours, four hours of this. So it's 11 o'clock in the morning and we're like, you know, it doesn't sound like anybody's going to do something. And then we're like, we should do something. It was then that Lisa had a big idea. We only send out truckload volumes of produce. That's what we do every second is we send out truckloads of broccoli. What if we sent a truckload to the president? It's really the only thing that you can do. The only yeah. thing your company does is send truckloads of things. <laughs> it's, it's the only arrow in your quiver. Absolutely. And so it was It was so organic. And you could just feel the shift when we said, well, we should just send a truckload. Very quickly, Lisa recruited a dozen growers to donate fresh produce. And a freight company agreed to pay the shipping cost. The plan was coming together. So we have these cardboard boxes of fresh broccoli. They're filled with what we would call an ice slurry to keep it cold and keep it fresh. And the truck that arrived to pick up the broccoli is kind of the, the classic, you know, big, massive semi-truck trailer. We fill the truck from the front to the back, 1,008 cartons. And that equated to approximately 20,000 pounds which, when you do the math, works out to be about 10 tons. What were you hoping to accomplish? We just wanted to be heard. And we really want America to know that if you don't like it, it's probably something to do with how you're cooking it, because it's just too good and too good for you to kind of walk away from, even though the president decided that that's what he wanted to do. Do you remember watching the broccoli truck pull away? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we all just kind of stood there and went, wow, you know, we've done it. Like, we have a truck going to Washington, D.C. full of broccoli for the president. The broccoli began its cross-country journey on Tuesday, March 20th. That day, Lisa sent out a press release via fax. It was the first one she'd ever written. For immediate release, 10 tons of broccoli donated to President Bush. Washington, D.C. President Bush will smile each time he sees broccoli from now on. Contains Lisa's press release said that broccoli was inexpensive, healthful, nutritious, and delicious. It bragged that the green vegetable had no cholesterol and was high in dietary fiber. And it urged the broccoli industry to dish up some new recipes, ones that might encourage the president to give broccoli one more try. We feel strongly that a voice that is heard around the nation can influence the public he represents. Before President Bush eats another pork rind, the nation will know broccoli is a better substitute. 
There's a line in there about how two boxes are going to be presented to President Bush. Was that a plan that you'd worked out with the White House? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. We'd had no contact with the White House. In 24 hours, that would change. A simmering dispute between President Bush and America's broccoli growers is fast coming to a head. We'll be back in a minute. On March 20th, 1990, Lisa Cork sent 10 tons of broccoli to Washington, D.C., faxed out a press release, and went to bed. The next day, a Wednesday, she got up before the sun rose and headed to the office. So I roll in, you know, my normal time, 4.30, and the phones are already ringing. And who was calling was the world's media. It all started last week with a vicious and unprovoked attack by the president. When that got out, broccoli growers had a fit. The farmers are sending tons of broccoli to Washington, hoping to persuade Mr. Bush to restore the vegetable to the presidential menu. Lisa's press release had worked. Her truckload of broccoli was a sensation. And this was just the start. It would take nearly a week for the veggies to make their way from California to Washington, D.C. In the meantime, Lisa's phone didn't stop ringing. We had had a call from Good Morning America. And one of the things that they wanted to do was track the truck. And we were just a little bit nervous about being too exact with the location, you know, in case, I don't know, someone decided to hijack our truckload of broccoli. Were you really worried that the broccoli truck was going to get hijacked? We had some concerns. (laughs) Probably not rational concerns, but you just never know, right? To avoid a possible vegetable hijacking, They gave out the truck's location on a 12-hour delay. Now everyone in America could follow the broccoli's progress in almost real time. And some very powerful people were keeping a close eye on the shipment. Suddenly, we had a call from the White House. And it was President Bush's media team. What was the tone of that phone call? Uh, Terse. (laughs) And questioning. We hear that there is a truckload of broccoli destined for the president, and we need to know what your intentions are. Did you think that maybe you had made a mistake? I have a feeling that that probably went through my mind. Oh, buggery, what have we done? Well, it was at that point that I was a little concerned that this story might turn on us. White House Press Secretary Marlon Fitzwater. I was getting nervous about it. The broccoli manufacturers, they want to come in and see the president. I'm thinking, this is it. We still didn't really have a huge plan. You know, maybe when the truck got there, we thought maybe, well, if nobody's going to meet with us, we'll throw a couple of cases over the fence and run. They wanted to get in the game. So somebody went to the president and told him what was going on. It was now up to George Bush to decide how he wanted to play this whole broccoli situation. But on March 22nd, 1990, he had a lot more than vegetables on his plate. A short while earlier, Lithuania had become the first Soviet republic to declare its independence from the USSR. Soviet laws declared the parliament would no longer apply in Lithuania, and the words socialist and Soviet would be dropped from the official title. It was a seismic moment, one that looked like it could reshape the entire globe. 
Standing on the south lawn of the White House, reporters pressed Bush on what might come next. He was asked what he would do if the Soviet response turned violent. His answer was a Bush classic, a study in caution. Stop right there. I am not going to make a, an answer to a hypothetical question of that nature. What possible good would come from the president of the United States standing halfway around the world speculating on something that he doesn't want to see happen? I was there, yeah, yeah. And it was a beautiful day outside. Ken Walsh of U.S. News & World Report heard Bush's answer about Soviet aggression. But on that beautiful spring morning, Ken couldn't help thinking about his big scoop on the broccoli ban aboard Air Force One. I mean, you know, as a reporter, my feeling was, well, how is he going to address this? You know, where does this end? After those questions about Lithuania, someone piped up and asked for a broccoli statement. Well, we had talked about it in the Oval Office before he went out there. And then he went out and did this. Now look, this is the last statement I'm going to have on broccoli. There are truckloads of broccoli at this very minute descending on Washington. My family is divided. Here, the president pauses for four seconds, considering what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. And then George Bush lets loose. I do not like broccoli. And I haven't liked it since I was a little kid. And my mother made me eat it. And I'm president of the United States. And I'm not going to eat any more broccoli. Now. And he points back at the White House in this grand flourish. And he wasn't accustomed to doing that sort of thing. He was not into stagecraft. For me, that was good. He's basically confirming the story in a very dramatic way. As he makes that dramatic flourish, a very slight grin spreads across Bush's face. He understands that all of this is funny, but he's not exactly joking around. In his journal the next day, the president wrote, I refuse to give an inch on this. I can't stand the stuff. It smells up everything, and I'm against it. It was really this moment of awakening around, okay, this is, this is kind of done. He was never going to give Broccoli another chance. Never. Never. And immediately we get the call from the White House saying, you will have nothing further to do with Broccoli and the president. That's over. But that truck that Lisa had loaded with 10 tons of broccoli, it wasn't turning around. Let's take a quick break. The broccoli story had started as a single paragraph in U.S. News & World Report. Now, after just a handful of days, it had become a national obsession, and everyone in America was weighing in. As far as I'm concerned, that's just one more thing that President Bush is wrong about. Way to go, Mr. President. At last, you can stop hiding the broccoli under the mashed potato. A White House official said Bush was liberating America from the masochism of the fitness craze. A Washington Post critic claimed that the president was rejecting his WASP heritage. A New Hampshire chef speculated that the real reason the 65-year-old Bush hated broccoli is that it gives older people gas. As all of that swirled in the air, Lisa Cork's 10 tons of broccoli just kept moving forward. So every night when the truck stopped for dinner, they would give us a ring and say, you know, we're in Tucson, Arizona, we're in Dallas, Texas, 
That's how America kept up with where the broccoli truck was. Lisa knew that her fleet of vegetables would not be landing on George Bush's dinner plate. But at that news conference on the South Lawn of the White House, the president did something unexpected. He left an opening, one that was wide enough to drive a broccoli truck straight through. But Bart, wait a minute for the broccoli vote out there. Barbara loves broccoli. She's tried to make me eat it. She eats it all the time herself. So she can go out and meet the caravan of broccoli that's coming in from Washington outside. Thank you. The shuffle pass to Barbara Bush was such a gift. It enabled the story to continue in a way that was going to be positive. They gave us the phone number for Barbara Bush's press secretary. And probably within two hours, we had a date and time for a ceremony on the White House lawn. That ceremony would be in just a couple of days, and Lisa and her colleagues had to get ready. They put together a cookbook with recipes for broccoli soups, stir-fries, and casseroles. And they made up matching t-shirts with a cartoon broccoli logo. A cute little stock in running shoes, sprinting its way to Washington. And when we wore them, we were blown away by the number of people who stopped us, and they wanted photos. And everybody would always recount their own personal household story of broccoli, you know? This is how I cook it, or this is how my mom cooks it. How dare the president ban broccoli? Broccoli's a great vegetable. It was just so overwhelmingly supportive and positive. There must have been at least one guy who was like, I hate broccoli and I'm against you. Maybe he was the one who just didn't come up and talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday, March 25th, Lisa's special delivery from California finally arrived in the nation's capital. I was in the Oval Office, and I had been told the broccoli truck was supposed to arrive at a given time. And I thought, well, maybe a little pickup truck, you know. George Bush's press secretary, Marlon Fitzwater. So I looked out there, and I said, well, here it comes. My God, this is a big truck. This is like a semi-truck. We're on the sideboards. <laughs> on this truck driving, I think we maybe made one loop around the White House before we got pulled over by the Washington, D.C. police and said, you know, you can't do this here, right? What were you thinking as you're on the sideboards? Like, what have I done with my life to bring me to this moment? You know, I can only just remember being absolutely euphoric. It was beyond my wildest dreams as a 24-year-old to be riding on the sideboard of a truck at the back of the White House, getting ready to present broccoli to Barbara Bush. The big event came on Monday, March 26th. Lisa wore a green blazer with a broccoli corsage. Gosh, I just remember the absolute precision to the minute. And like, you know, three minutes till arrival, two minutes till arrival, and then here come the dogs. The dogs came first and you could hear their nails clacking on the floorboards. And then there's Barbara Bush walks down the row and shakes our hands and, you know, nice to meet you. I love broccoli. With that, they headed outside, led by the Bush's English Springer Spaniel, Millie. Their destination? The same South Lawn, where the president had just told the world that broccoli was dead to him forever. There was this huge semicircle of media representing every news agency of any merit in the world. And that was the part that just, like, took my breath away. It felt like a cast of thousands. Barbara Bush didn't have a microphone, so this is hard to hear. But the first thing she says, directed to all those reporters, is... Where are you when we're doing a literacy event? 
where are you when we're doing a literacy event? She then takes her place alongside the guest of honor, a heaping stack of green vegetables, unloaded from Lisa's truck. Here, we have this table set up with three cartons of broccoli, two unopened, one with loose broccoli spread across the table. How did the broccoli look? Did it look appetizing? Stunning. (laughs) Stunning. Fresh, green, vibrant, healthy, delicious. After the president of the United Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Association says a few words, the first lady takes the stage and explains that her husband is a lost cause. I'm going to tell you the honest truth. The president is never going to eat broccoli. (laughs) But I'm never going to eat pork broccoli. (laughs) Ever. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That's why you stayed married 45 years. A moment later, Mrs. Bush gets handed a sprig of broccoli wrapped in a white ribbon. It's a great gift. We're very grateful to you. Millie and I thank you for the broccoli. We'll eat it. The White House ceremony lasted only about six minutes. When it was done, Lisa got in a cab and headed to a local food bank to donate those 10 tons of broccoli. And that was it. Six days after she'd written her first ever press release, Lisa's DC broccoli adventure was over. I mean, there was a a tinge of exhaustion, (laughs) but it was pure joy. I was in an industry that I loved, with a product that I loved, doing work that I loved. And I just knew that I was in the career I would be in forever. It makes me teary to this day to think about that moment and just realizing how much I loved marketing fresh fruits and vegetables. For Lisa Cork, loving broccoli was the secret to a happy life. And for broccoli itself, getting damned to culinary hell by the leader of the free world turned out to be a pretty sweet deal. Lisa's produce company claimed that broccoli had reaped $100 million in free publicity and that its sales shot up by 40%. And George Bush? Hating broccoli and leaning into that hatred kind of became his thing. My apologies to all for speaking before the broccoli and leaving. (laughs) President Bush joked about broccoli at least 70 times during his one term in office. He said he preferred giving speeches over breakfast because he knew broccoli wouldn't be served. He also suggested that broccoli killed the dinosaurs and President Zachary Taylor. And he wasn't about to take that risk himself. I had the Secret Service come over here this afternoon and do that usual security sweep before a presidential visit. Place was clean. No broccoli. (laughs) How did the whole broccoli incident change President Bush's image? Well, I think it did help a little bit, at least, in the sense that he was not afraid. That people could see he thought this was funny, and he was not afraid to be funny. Looking back at the coverage, as you can imagine, there's a thousand different angles. But one of the ones that I found interesting was, finally, Bush takes a firm stance on something. I mean, waffles on Lithuania and this and that. But God, by God, you know where he stands on broccoli. No waffles on broccoli. <laughs> on broccoli, he'll say exactly what he feels. But if you ask him about yeah. anything else, he'll be wishy-washy. We can't get a straight answer out of the guy. You know, that's very interesting because later in the same year, Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, and the president took charge immediately. Uh, what Iraq has done violates every norm of international law. You know, I don't know whether this incident, broccoli, was in his mind at all, but I do know 
the press was waiting for us on the lawn where they always are. And the president looked down and he looked up and he said, this, this will, not, will stand. not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. And that was it. Similar to his tone when he was talking about broccoli. Yes, this will not stand. I got my marching orders. I'll admit it. I'm not totally convinced that George Bush's war on broccoli inspired him to launch Operation Desert Storm. But consider this. During his first year in office, he was seen as too boring to get on the evening news. Then Bush lashed out at a vegetable, and the American media couldn't get enough. This President Bush may have sounded like a petulant child, complaining about yucky green stuff, but he was not a follower. Even when a poll came out in March 1990, showing that 79% of Americans actually liked broccoli, he refused to back down. And while he definitely played up his hatred for laughs, I can assure you that it wasn't a put-on. His post-presidential chief of staff told me that Bush found broccoli so disgusting that he wouldn't eat other foods that a stalk of broccoli had touched. Every time there's any development with broccoli, this story comes up. So I've benefited from this too, quite frankly. Journalist Ken Walsh. From start to finish, it was a bizarre story. I'm the first to admit that. And I, as I remember, at the eulogy at his death, his son, George W. Bush, brought up the broccoli story. The man couldn't stomach vegetables, especially broccoli. And by the way, he passed these genetic defects along to us. How do you feel about broccoli? I don't like broccoli. No. And I, I probably would have been happy with Bush's diet all his life. Will you eat broccoli, though? I will eat it, yes. I have, I have succumbed to the broccoli movement. Even today, I will say things like, Melinda, I don't like spinach. I don't want spinach ever, not under any circumstance. And then I catch myself, my God, I'm sounding like George Bush. So I have bad news for you. There's a truck with 10 tons of spinach <laughs> that's pulling into the driveway no, right now. No, there's not. <laughs> not my driveway. <laughs> I don't know. That would be scary. Next time on One Year 1990, an art exhibit opens in Cincinnati and kicks off a massive culture war. Is that the kind of thing that we want to put in public art galleries? Do we want to put people having sex with animals? Do we want to put images of people having sex with dead people? Where do we draw the line? If you want to hear all of our one-year episodes without any ads, you should subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's website. And at the end of the season, you'll be able to hear a special behind-the-scenes conversation with our team about how we put together our 1990 stories. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash one year plus. Again, that's slate.com slash one year plus. This episode was written by Olivia Briley and me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director. Our senior producer is Evan Chan. This episode was produced by Olivia Briley and Kelly Jones. It was edited by Joel Meyer and Evan Chan. Derek John is Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. 
Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Ken Walsh is the author of Feeding the Beast, The White House versus the Press, and a bunch more books about the presidency. Research help for this episode came from the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. You can send us feedback and ideas, memories from 1990 at oneyearatslate.com. You can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Gene Becker, Lloyd Green, Will Salatan, Frank Four, Vic Whitley-Berry, Teihe Butler, Buffy Hollis, Sophie Summergrad, Susan Matthews, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1990.